I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. That's right. So tux yourself in and listen. Like a, like a wedding tux. Like a tuxedo. Tuxedo. Got Not it. A- One of these days I'll understand what it is when you say it. <laughs> See, a pun is a kind of joke where two I know words what a pun is. sound the same, but they're not the same. I know that. So what are you going to teach me about today, love? Today, we are going to talk about a very wonderful person. Oh, you didn't have to do not that. You. Oh, okay. Not you. It's not you. We're going to talk about this wonderful person who's, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have some of my favorite things. Okay. And we are going to talk about Jim Henson. Oh. And you like Jim Henson, too, so... I do. I, I mean, never met the man, but generally speaking. Well, well, no, he's dead. Spoilers. Eventually, this episode's gonna get really sad. I might be crying. It's, Let's start at the beginning. That makes more sense. It's a sense. very good place to start, and that's with Jim Henson's birth. Jim Henson uh, was born uh, James mm-hmm. Henson uh, on September 24th, 1936. Well, happy 81st birthday this fall, James. Yeah. yeah. He was born to uh, Paul Ransom Henson and Betty Marcella Brown. He was the youngest of two children. He had one older brother, Paul. Uh, He grew up in Leland, Mississippi, but moved to University Park, Maryland in the 1940s, which is where he spent most of his life. So in 1954, we're not going to really talk about his childhood. We're going to talk about like... When he's starting to go down the path that leads him to be the Jim Henson we know. So we're picking up when he's 18 then. Yes. Picking up when he's in high school. Several production eight, uh, assistants from a local uh, TV station came to his school. Mm-hmm. And they were uh, they visited the local puppetry club, which he was a part of. And they were looking for puppeteers for a morning children's show, which uh, Jim jumped at. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the opportunity. It was a Saturday morning kids show called The Junior Morning Show. Uh, Quite a name. Uh, It premiered in June 19th, 1954. Uh, Sadly, it only aired for three weeks. Well, what are you even (laughs) going to cover? The junior news? The junior weather? And now we have a junior chef showing us a a junior recipe? What do you even do with that kind of show? Well, unfortunately, it was apparently canceled because of child labor laws that had (laughs) been, like, revisioned around the time. And three of the program's participants were under the age of 14 and couldn't get work permits. Uh So, like, they didn't have anyone to do this show except Jim. Because they had, like, a junior line producer and a junior key grip. Well, when you go to the high school to get your employees, some of them aren't going to be able to work. But it did give Henson some experience, and it got him mentioned in the papers for his efforts uh, within those few weeks. Uh, He did also premiere uh, his own character within the show, Pierre the French Rat, a character that he originated in a comic strip. Um, when he was in high school. Uh, so he created a puppet of that character and used it on the show. We do have a picture of that puppet that we are going to put in the links. There's going to be a lot of links, you guys. Just warning you now. <laughs> I've came across this comic, too. Yeah? Of of his, his French buddy. That was uh, his like first start yeah, to Professional puppetry. puppetry. Yeah. So after he graduated high school, very shortly after this, because he was like 18 when this was happening, Mm -hmm. uh, he enrolled at the University of Maryland College Park uh, as a studio arts major. 
his plan was kind of to go into like maybe commercial stuff or advertising. Mm-hmm. Not that's, completely sure. That's where the money is in art, I suppose. Yeah. He took a puppetry class, though, that was offered at the college through the Applied Arts Department, and it was his first introduction to the College of Home Economics. And the College of Home Economics offered a lot of courses in craft and textiles, which is what he found out he was actually interested in. Mm -hmm. So he ended up switching his major and graduated in 1960 with a Bachelor of Science in Home Economics. Which is something that they don't really do anymore, like, anywhere. No. And I bet, like, the degree he has and, like, what he studied exists, just not as that name. Yeah, I, you could probably find an art school that offers a, a, a degree in, like, textile studies. I have a friend who got a degree in textiles. There and you specifically go. her concentration was, like, 1,700 textiles. <laughs> But if any of you know a school that still offers a home ec degree, I would love to see that. Yeah. It makes me very curious, actually, what programs actually fell under that degree title. Because mm-hmm. um, I'm sure it was probably very broad. Cooking, balancing a checkbook. Making puppets. Darning socks. Weaving rugs. <laughs> In college, uh, during his freshman year, uh, he... Uh, created another show for a TV station, and that was Sam and Friends. It was a five-minute puppet show uh, for the local TV station. And the characters that he used were very much predecessors to the Muppet characters we know Mm -hmm. now. So it was created by Jim, and he also brought in uh, Jane Neville, who um, would later become Jane Henson, his wife. Oh. Uh, At the time, they were just friends. And uh, <laughs> she she came on to assist and help with the creation of the show. Between May 9th, 1955 and December 15th, 1961, uh, they made 86 five-minute episodes. Okay. It was taped and it aired twice daily, uh, originally in black and white and then later in color. Um, unfortunately, most of the episodes were wiped after showing, so Aww. they don't exist. Um, but there are some that do that a certain museum has, like, preserved. But several of them have made it onto YouTube as well. (laughs) Uh, So found some of those for you, too. Sam and Friends had uh, several characters. There was Sam. Sam Mm -hmm. was a bald-headed human puppet who didn't speak, but lip-synced to songs, um, which was a big kind of their original way of running the show was a lot of lip-syncing to popular songs of the time. Yeah. And, like, Muppet Show fans will know that that never stopped. Oh, that, that <laughs> there's a theme with uh, Jim Henson's early work is that mm-hmm. you later just continue to see it inspiring yeah. other things, just which is kind of great. The, the ability to take a song as the script for a basically a comedy sketch. Yeah. And then having the puppets do physical gags to make the comedy part happen. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So Sam was one of the few puppets uh, that had a hard face. So uh, Sam had friends. Um, <laughs> there was Yorick. He was a purple skull who ate everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, can be considered a predecessor to the hungry monsters, like Cookie Monster and stuff. Mm-hmm. The ones that are just big and just... Ah, rah, rah, rah. Um, there's Harry the Hipster. Harry the Hipster, I think, is my favorite. <laughs> Harry the Hipster was a sock puppet with sunglasses and mm-hmm. who's just, like, all into jazz and, like, saying so the cool, like, words of the time. The 1950s definition of hipster. Yeah. Back when it meant something. Yeah. There was Professor Mudcliffe, uh, who was, like, 
kind of a tube with a mustache and was very loud. <laughs> That's the best way to describe it. It's kind of a tube. Uh, there was chicken liver. That seems rude. <laughs> uh, chicken liver was a very dramatic storyteller, and he thought the show Sam and Friends lacked culture. <laughs> Sounds maybe a little bit like Sam the Eagle's predecessor. I'm betting that Chicken Liver was right, though. I don't think I disagree. And uh, in addition to some other characters, there was also a lizard-like Kermit. Aww. So Kermit wasn't originally a frog. Kermit was some type of unnamed lizard. So the characters were all pretty abstract. Yeah. Um, even like the human-like Sam didn't fully look like a human. Uh, Henson didn't want to try and make them look like a human or a creature fully, he he wanted them to just kind of give the idea of something. Because that's creepy. Like, that's creepy. <laughs> I don't know if the term uncanny valley had been coined in the mid-50s, but it's still an idea that existed. Well, I think it very much makes like your, it's, it's your own style then. Like, he's mm -hmm. already starting to create an aesthetic with his characters. Yeah, yeah. If you try to make them all realistic, they're just going to kind of seem like what everyone else like, is doing. Charlie McCarthy existed. It's a creepy doll. <laughs> Everybody knows this. Yeah. So as I mentioned, they would lip sync to popular songs and other things they would do. Um, they transitioned into more sketches like the Muppets, spoofing other shows at the time. They're apparently mm -hmm. very big into spoofing the show that came on after them. <laughs> um, one of the most popular sketches, which is something that goes into that idea of still seeing it today and how it was carried on, was where like a character would eat a worm, but it was like the worm that like never ended. Mm -hmm. And then it went as actually like a giant monster's nose or tongue or something, and then they would eat you. <laughs> that started back in Sam and Friends. There's yeah. several instant um, episodes where that appeared. Um, so they reused that gag a bunch for their five minute episodes. Yeah, and they still only made eighty three over six years. It's like eighty six. Come on. Well, they're only five minutes, and <laughs> exactly, they're only five minutes. <laughs> Well, they, they can only make as many as the TV station wants to show. That's true. Uh, Bob Payne and Jerry Jewell, who would both become a part of many future Henson projects, especially Jerry Jewell. I'm going to mention him about five billion times during this. <laughs> this is like half his episode. Uh, they stepped uh, into assisting as puppeteers as well. Mm -hmm. um, Payne, when Henson was out of town, and Jewel um, would take over for Jane towards the end of the show. And even though other people were involved, Henson actually did most of the voice work for the whole show. Mm -hmm. um, if not, in some episodes, like all of it. it. It's interesting that all these recognizable names came together so early. So even yeah. if you watch the Sam and Friends show, you're going to recognize every voice. Because it's already all of Jim Henson's voices. It's, it's, yeah. And well, and it's the other people involved with it are people that would then go on to be involved with yeah. everything. <laughs> so going back to what we're talking about, about like the hard faced puppet of Sam, mm -hmm. which was very much the norm of the time was a hard surface puppet. Henson working on Sam and Fle Friends um, gave him a chance to start experimenting with technique uh, and changing the way puppets were used on television. So a big part of that was what they were made out of. Because TV is such like an intimate uh, medium, he saw the need that the puppets needed life and to be able to move and to have more emotion. So they started uh, experimenting with using um, 
foam rubber and covering it in like flexible fabric so that mm-hmm. way they could move better uh they could be more expressive um they also started using the rods uh to control the arms which allowed for more movement because they suddenly had this more expressive puppet because they changed the material there was now a big bigger focus on how to move the mouth yeah. How to make it speak. Because, because it's pup- not just a hinge anymore. Yeah. Back then, puppets were very much just randomly kind of flung about. It wasn't about trying to sync the words to it. But now they had the ability to do it. They worked on making that a focus. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing they were able to do was experiment with camera shots that allowed them to be off screen. And so <laughs> you just saw the puppets. That wasn't yeah. the norm before then. Which is kind of insane that... Like, how much of what we see nowadays as, like, this is the way mm-hmm. these puppets are done started so early so quickly. Yeah. Like, in one show, they were like, okay, this is what we're doing. <laughs> Granted, they've evolved techniques and everything since then. But, like, the but broad strokes show yeah, up very early. Yeah, very quickly. So, in uh, 2010, uh, Jane Henson actually donated 10 of the puppets from the show to the Smithsonian. Aww. Um, they included Yorick, Harry the Hipster, Chicken Liver, Professor Madcliffe, Pierre the French Rat from the Junior Morning Show, which is actually the oldest puppet um, they have that Henson built himself. Aww. Um, Sam, the original Kerm- Kermit, and then a couple other characters uh, called Moldy Hay, Mushmelon, kind of resembles like an Oscar the Grouch. And uh, something called Icky Gunk, which was a snake-like character. Mushmelon and Icky Gunk and Moldy Hay. Uh, Some of them have been sent out uh, on loan to other museums and for tours and stuff. Uh, So Sam and Friends was a financial success, but Henson was kind of unsure about if that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. So he took some time off. Uh, He went to... Europe and kind of explored there and he was really inspired um, by a lot of the puppeteers that were performing in there because they treated their work like art. Yeah. It was an art form to them, not just I make puppets. Yeah, the, the difference between European art comics and American superhero stuff. Yeah. Or birthday clowns and mum and shants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Europe takes their stuff seriously. Yeah. So he came back very inspired by that and seeing that kind of his work was more than just work. Mm-hmm. He had a chance to do something here. Uh, so when he returned, uh, he and Jane started dating. Aw, that, that's the first step to creating art is, yeah. is finding someone to settle down with. Well, they would get married in 1959 and they would <laughs> go on to have five children. Jane would retire from performing a few years later uh, so she could raise them. Mm -hmm. Um, So she kind of took a step back from being involved. In 1958, Muppets LLC, which was later be known as the Jim Henson Company, was founded by uh, Jim and Jane. Uh, This was about three years into Sam and Friends starting. Right. So it's still going on. But they already locked down the Muppet name for that project and any future ones. Yes. The popularity of Sam and Friends led to a lot of talk show and variety show appearances. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, hundreds and hundreds of commercial appearances (laughs) for him and his characters. Um, The next big step in his career was the commercials. Uh, Wilkins Coffee Company in D.C. hired him for a series of ads. 
I believe you've seen these I before. I love the Wilkins <laughs> coffee ads so much. Yeah, they're amazing. We're going to put a couple of them up, too. So good. The early Muppet characters would perform slapstick comedy to sell coffee. The setup of these ads are one character asks another if he wants some Wilkins coffee, and then the grumpy one's like, no, I don't like coffee. Or like, I don't know that company. And <laughs> then the first character just viciously murders the second. Uh-huh. Because you... The, the penalty for not drinking Wilkins is death. Yes. This type of uh, skit we would see later on in <laughs> Henson's career as well. Now, these commercials were a huge success. They're hilarious. Well, and it was also... <laughs> brutal. It was also a new approach to TV marketing. Yeah. Before you this, mean Stone Cold Murder wasn't usually used? More so like humor. Okay. Uh... Kind of the hard sell was the way to go with TV advertising. It wasn't necessarily supposed to be like entertainment mm-hmm. in uh, commercials, and so it was a new, new approach. Like a typical coffee ad would be about all the pep you get and yeah. saying the name fifty times. Yeah, and not the smooth flavor. Let's just blast this character with a cannon. Yeah, go buy some coffee. Local coffee companies across the country ended up hiring Henson out to reshoot the ad or similar ones for them. About 300 different coffee ads were made. <laughs> like 300 times they killed a Muppet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's okay because they have infinite lives. They're but, not real, dear. Of course they're real. Okay. They're not mortal, dear. Okay. In 1962... Henson produced The Tales of the Tinker D. Uh, it was written by him and Jerry Jewell, um, mm-hmm. who had joined the company in 1961. Uh, it was an unaired pilot filmed in Atlanta. The, it featured Kermit as the narrator singing songs and playing his lute. As people do in yes. fairy tales. And uh, other the- characters from the fairy tale kingdom. It was very fast-paced. And it was the first time Kermit appeared with a collar. Yeah. The original Kermit did not have a collar. Uh, he did appear with one here, but it was not green, apparently. It was, like, orange. So <laughs> How this- could you tell? I'm sure this was shot in black and white. Well, there's, like, a color picture. Somewhere. Okay. <laughs> the pilot never aired, but it was kind of their first attempt at another show, another way mm-hmm. of taking these characters somewhere. In uh, 1963, Henson moved to New York City, where uh, Muppet LLC would reside for some time, and Frank Oz joined the company around this time as well. Uh, shortly after, a second Tinker D pilot would be made, The Land of Tinker D. This was in uh, 1964. Now, it was a pilot for, as like a daily children's show, and the version was similar, but like simpler. There's mm-hmm. only like one set. The last one had like multiple sets that would come in and out. Uh, it also paired a human actor with a Muppet dog named Rufus. It reminds me very much of Sprocket <laughs> combined with Rolf. Well, how different like, can a dog get? A dog's a dog. Well, like Sprocket in the relationship between man and dog, uh, okay. and then like Rolf in the way that like the dog actually talks. Okay. Yeah. The talk show appearance appearances continued, and there was a new character that came to the forefront there, Rolf the dog, a piano playing dog, um, who originally started as a character for Purina dog chow commercials, <laughs> but it became the first Muppet to make regular appearances on network TV. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a regular from 1963 to 1966 on the Jimmy Dean show. 
the first Muppet you think of is Kermit, right? Yeah. And Kermit is sort of considered Jim Henson's self-insert. Yeah. But the whole Muppet brand is kind of built on Rolf's back. Yeah. Well, and one thing that was interesting I read, like, going back to, like, Sam and Friends, uh, when Kermit was not a frog but a lizard still, like, the TV station did, like, a poll with people who watched. Mm-hmm. And, like, Kermit came in, like, third or fourth place for, like, favorite character on the show. <laughs> Kermit was not the forefront at all. If you're competing against great characters like Icky Thump or whatever. <laughs> uh, Rolf being on the Jimmy Dean show was such a huge break for the company. Mm-hmm. As you just said, it it's what really set them off. And Henson was so grateful that he actually offered Jimmy Dean 40% interest in the company. <laughs> like, that's insane. Yeah, yeah. Dean declined. He said that uh, he didn't want any of the reward for Henson's work, that he deserved all of it. Mm-hmm. Gotta wonder if the dude ever kicked himself for that. Look, he <laughs> sleeps on a bed made of sausage gold. All right, he's fine. During this time, you know, he's he's his career's taking off. Commercials are happening all the time. The characters on network TV, they're doing great. We've mentioned Henson really was interested in experimenting. Mm-hmm. He liked to experiment with technique, try new things, develop the craft. Um, so it's not really surprising that he had a big interest in experimental filmmaking, too. And during this time in the mid-1960s is when he really takes an interest in it. Uh, and I feel like these are the things, like, unless you're, like, a Henson fan, you don't know about these things <laughs> at all, which is a shame. Yeah, they're sort of forgotten, uh, yeah. buried under the foam rubber and fun fur. Of history. Yeah. So uh, one of the experimental films he made was called Timepiece. It's so good. Yes. We have both seen. We were lucky at C2E2 a couple years ago. uh, They showed it. Yeah. One of his daughters came out to show it. Yeah. And it was incredible. So it's a live action, uh, nine minute film directed, written, and starring Jim Henson. It has no puppetry at all in it. It does have some animation. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. but for the most part, it's just live action. It was nominated in 1966 for the short film Oscar. And it should have won. It should have. I honestly don't know what it was up against. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it follows a man who's like in a hospital bed through like regular activities to crazy fantasy situations. And there's this sense of trying to escape like the passage of time. Mm-hmm. It builds a lot on imagery and sound of, like, beats and your heartbeat and time clicking yeah. away to like, give that sense. Montage-style editing. And yes, sort of very quick shots. Free association. Um, and then there's, like, weird stuff where, like, you know, as I said, mentions getting to, the, like, the fantasy situations where, like, he paints an elephant, he escapes from jail, he runs his Abe Lincoln, he flies through the sky. Like, it's just... <laughs> and then the mention of animation used very much kind of in... Style that we would later later see in Sesame Street with colors mm-hmm. and matching sound to, in this case, build upon the idea of time. One thing that's really interesting about it is it was not written as a script. Oh? It was completely storyboarded. Oh. Like, every single shot, Henson, like, storyboarded out. He didn't write it at all. Folks listening have, are more likely to have seen something recent that did the same thing. Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so Timepiece was also shot between other projects. So it filmed between June 1964 and May 1965. 
Just bit by bit whenever they could find the time. Yeah. And apparently Henson was like super planned out with this. Not only did he storyboard everything, but apparently like he calculated how long every shot would take, how many frames there would be, Mm -hmm. like exactly how much they would need and how much they had to film. Because they didn't have a lot of time. But I'm like, that sounds like that would take more time, dude. Just, like, go film. (laughs) I wasn't able to find, like, the full video on, like, YouTube. I know it used to be there. There are some clips we're going to link. But I did hear that it used to be on iTunes. So if you're interested in watching it, check out iTunes. It might still be there. Another film he did was The Cube. Yeah. Which uh, is available on on YouTube. I saw it. The whole thing's on YouTube. Um, it is an hour-long teleplay that aired on uh, NBC's weekly TV show uh, called NBC Experiment in Television in 1969. Uh, it was produced and directed by Jim Henson. The screenplay co-written with Jerry Jewell. They were buddies. The plot in this one is there's a man in a room, and the room is the only set. Mm-hmm. It's this cube that he's in, and different people enter the cube but he never leaves. He doesn't know why he's there, how he's there, or if he can leave. Mm-hmm. And it's really about television itself, and it sort of dances with the fourth wall yeah. on both sides. Yeah. I could go into like long descriptions of these short films, but really they just need to be watched. Yeah. Just, just go watch them. They're really good. Yeah. Like, I knew about these. I didn't know um, he created a bunch of other short films at the time as well that mm-hmm. were much more like short films. Like, um, these are like... A minute to three minutes. Um, and some of them include uh, one called Run Run, Wheels That Go, Ripples. And these, a lot of them use actually his um, children mm-hmm. in them at the time. And they are very much like the type of videos that you would see on Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. Which is so interesting to me because this is before Sesame Street um, by a little bit. And like the Run Run, run, run is like... A video of his kids exploring the woods. Mm -hmm. And the music in it is so incredibly Sesame Street. (laughs) And it's just the whole thing put together. I was like, you could just put this in an episode of Sesame Street. Jim Henson would go on to make things for Sesame Street. And you can really see, like, his style. Yeah. So during this time as well, uh, Jewel and Henson were writing a live-action experimental movie script. Um, and it would be Henson's last unproduced full-length screenplay. It would never become a movie. But uh, it is called Tale of Sand. And if you are a graphic novel person, you might have heard of it. So it was a story that mixed much of what Timepiece and The Cube explored mm-hmm. uh, together. It was a man racing across the desert while being chased by another man, and there was... It explored time. There's a lot of weirdness. Explored it's, like the vastness of something and being alone, it's, isolated. It's dialogue free. Yes. In 2012, it was adapt- adapted into a graphic novel by um, Archaea Entertainment. The Henson family wanted uh, to use the graphic novel as an approach to like storyboard it. Mm-hmm. They didn't want it to be made into a movie. They didn't want it to fully come into ex- existence without jim henson but they wanted people to see what it was and i think the idea of like using it as a way to storyboard his ideas just really cool yeah henson and jewel were were going back and forth collaborating on this screenplay from the mid-60s until his death yeah it's really cool so check it out 
We've talked a little bit about Sesame Street, and we're finally going to talk about Sesame Street. Imagine that. Uh, in 1969, uh, producer Joan Gaines Cooney uh, and staff at the Children's Television Network were super impressed with the work that Henson and his team were doing, mm-hmm. and uh, they asked them to work full-time on Sesame Street, which uh, was just coming into creation. Yeah. First, the plan was for the Muppet characters to appear separately from any live action Thanks. They mm-hmm. would be like two separate shows within a show. <laughs> and they filmed it this way, but it screen tested really poorly. The stuff that kids paid attention to most were things that involved the Muppet characters along with some other pieces. So they realized they needed to like rework how they were presenting stuff. So they did redo it. They integrated Muppet characters into things and his characters became a larger part of the project. Yeah. They're oh. most of the residents of the yeah. neighborhood. Yeah, originally they were just supposed to be a side thing, but they became just as important as any human actor. Uh, now, Henson would, like, forever downplay his role in Sesame Street, mm-hmm. um, but Cooney and PBS would forever praise him for helping create what they have. Sesame Street did allow Henson to stop doing commercials, which he was really excited about. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we covered it, but he was a hippie dude. Like, He was, yeah. He's really navigating this tension between having to make money to pursue his art. Ability to experiment and to continue to create new technique and stuff is things that will forever be important in what he does. Yeah. And just making commercials doesn't it's, really... It's not that. Yeah. Because yeah, people want exactly, well, you did this for someone else. I want you to do that for us, too. Right. We don't want you to create something new. Just give us what you did. I, I make coffee in Oregon. Yes. G- give me those same D.C. area coffee commercials. Yeah. So Henson was involved in the creation and puppeteering of the Muppet characters, like which we all know. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, as I mentioned, produced a variety of the shows and animation inserts um, for many seasons. Uh, some of the famous ones he's done were Dollhouse. The ones I'm going to name, like if you, they are on YouTube. If you look at them. You will like be like, oh yes, I saw this as a child. I know this. <laughs> like dollhouse, there it's, it's children like playing with a dollhouse. Um, number three ball film, where is like the red ball going down like the crazy, mm-hmm. um, almost roller coaster like, along with some other ones. And what's really interesting, as I mentioned, is like the style of it is what he was experimenting with before he came to Sesame mm-hmm. Street. You can see him still like, using those ideas. They're experimental techniques, but it's also commercial-like shorts. Yeah. Commercial length, and they, they grab your attention mm-hmm. because that's what like children's behavioral research said. Yeah. That would really grab kids' attention and, and get them to get something to stick in their head. Yeah, so this is really interesting, and a lot of those are available to watch, and I think it's just fun to compare them to what he did before. Um, I guess with that, we should probably take a break real quick before we keep going. Because <laughs> we could talk about this for hours, yes. but y'all gotta do stuff with your lives. I get it. So we're back. Yay. 
Yeah. So we, we learned about uh, Jim Henson's early life and career. Mm-hmm. And you just started talking about things that people will probably recognize. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're to the stuff that most people are starting to know. In 1972, mm-hmm. uh, Jim Henson made another uh, TV special called The Muppet Musicians of Bremen, which he directed and produced and Jerry Jules wrote. Yeah. Of course, you know, let's just assume. <laughs> uh, this led to a series of other specials. It's an interesting pair, like Jerry Jules, his writing partner, but Frank Oz was very often his scene partner. Yeah. Because, like, they're Kermit and Piggy, they're... Uh, Bert and Ernie. Yeah. But meanwhile, Jerry Jewell is just like... It's like the creator of what they say. That's more of a backstage pair. That's the Rodgers and Hammerstein. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which, I mean, he deserves his own episode, (laughs) honestly. This TV special led to a bunch of other TV specials um, called The Tales from Muppet Land. It was a comic retelling of classic fairy tales hosted by Kermit. So it, it goes back to the uh, storyteller, whatchamacallit, those failed pilots. Yeah, which uh, fairy tales were very much something Henson was always interested in doing. He always thought there was a lot to learn from them, um, a lot of ways that they could be relevant to what lessons like kids need to know and things going on, which is yeah. kind of why he always went back to them. And also a lot of humor you can get out of them. Yes. Never ending well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of people figured that one out. So around this time, though, uh, Henson was also concerned, though, with the fact that they were becoming seen as just creators for children's programming. Yeah. They they do the kid stuff. Yeah. That's what they were seen as. You do Sesame Street. You do these Muppet things for kids. So anytime he'd take out, like, oh, I've got this cool thing called Tale of Sand. There's no dialogue in it, and it's super weird. People would not be receptive. So he wanted to target... An adult audience. And the way he decided to do this at this point was a series of sketches on the first season of Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I don't think many people know that. And the people who do know that they were bad. They were bad they sketches. Were bad. So this happened between 1975 and 1976. They created characters specifically for SNL. They were not regular Muppets. Um, and the reoccurring sketch uh, was called The Land of Gork. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like an alien, swampy place. Many of the characters kind of look like the... Kind of remind me of stuff from, like, Fraggle Rock, in a way. But ugly? But ugly. And I mean, but ugly. Like, ugly, yeah. <laughs> Henson was really excited about what Lauren Michaels was trying to create with SNL. Uh, and really excited about the partnership. Unfortunately... The writers of SNL were not at all interested in writing for the Muppets. And that's where a big thing, I think, comes into play, is that they didn't bring writers from Jim Henson's company. They were not Muppet writers. They were SNL writers writing for his characters, and they didn't want to be writing for his characters. This all makes so much more sense now. Yeah. Writers from the time claim that whoever drew the short straw that week had to write for them type thing. (laughs) Like, they did not want to do this. So really, they had a lot working against them Mm -hmm. in trying to make this happen. It kind of makes sense that it wasn't very good because (laughs) you didn't exactly have people rooting for it to be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That didn't last very long. (laughs) Uh, Henson was also developing uh, two projects for the Muppets, a Broadway 
musical mm-hmm. show, which uh, kind of got scrapped pretty quickly, uh, and a weekly TV show. Uh, in 1976, the series was rejected by American networks as they didn't think there would be a wide enough audience to watch it. Like, only kids would watch yeah. it. Why would adults watch this? It doesn't matter how sort of anarchic their humor is. Yeah. They're still the dang Muppets that show up on Sesame Street. Yeah. So it was pitched to a company in the UK who financed it. Mm-hmm. We were like, yes, we want to do this. Uh, it would be shot in the UK and syndicated worldwide. So the Jim Henson team moved to England where the Muppet Show began taping. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for those people in the UK, we would not have had the Muppet Show. And that's why the correct episode order is the UK air date. Mm-hmm. Also, um, the the UK versions always had an extra skit that the American broadcast didn't. Another... Uh, one-hour television special was made in 1977, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas for HBO. <laughs> it has good music. It's got an otter. Three years after The Muppet Show started, uh, The Muppet Movie came out, and it was a complete success. Uh, Rainbow Connection hit 25 on Billboard Hot 100, mm-hmm. which it should because it's a good song. Our recessional from our wedding uh-huh. uh, was the Rainbow Connection. Yeah. One of the many versions they've recorded and re-recorded since. Yes. Uh, in 1981, uh, Henson directed the sequel, The Great Muppet Caper. And uh, around this time, they also ended uh, The Muppet Show. And it was but- not because of poor ratings. It was because the show was going for, what, seven, eight years at this point? It was a while. It was yeah. a while at this point. Everything everything has to end sometime. Well, and it wasn't that the network like wanted it to end. It wasn't that they wanted to stop financing it. It was Jim Henson wanted to do other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very wrapped up you know, in the creation of the show, and you're putting out a new episode every week. There's not a lot of time for other things. Mm-hmm. So shortly before they ended The Muppet Show in 1981, Henson had started thinking about other projects outside of the traditional Muppet world. Uh, Around 1977, he began creating the world of the Dark Crystal. Yeah. Hence this shift in focus a lot. Uh, At the time when he started creating it, he wasn't really sure what the story was going to be, um, but he knew the kind of world he wanted to create for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And during that time, he came across Brian Froud, who had a collection of drawings that Henson loved the style of, and he brought him on as the conceptual designer for the Dark Crystal. Other than Dark Crystal stuff, he's famous for just, like, fairies in general. Yes. He's the fairy guy. He's the fairy guy. And those, like, his his drawings of his own stuff is what, like, Henson was like, yes, this, this is what I want. Mm -hmm. Henson was also having... uh, linguist Alan Garner create a language for the Skeksis characters uh, that was, like, based on ancient Greek and Egyptian. Um, He was really creating a whole new world Mm -hmm. um, and ideas and threw himself into this creation. Uh, Unfortunately, we lost this language of the Skeksis due to poor screen testing. (laughs) It was heady stuff. (laughs) He was still in sort of the headspace of these experimental art films, mm-hmm. but this is a studio commercial release. Yeah. You, you can't really think that way, unfortunately. If, if the audience can't understand, it usually doesn't go over well. <laughs> so let's have him speak English. In 1979, uh, Jim Henson's Creature Shop was founded. 
Uh, it was really made as a way to have the partnership between uh, Brian Froud to facilitate the production of the Dark Crystal. Mm-hmm. Um, they were going to need a lot of creatures, so they needed a place <laughs> to make them. Uh, it was originally uh, done in London, and then it was relocated uh, after Jim Henson's death to uh, Camden Town and run by his son, Brian. They also opened a California location. That's where they primarily operate out of now. Mm-hmm. Is when the Muppets were sold to Disney in 2004, the Muppet Workshop in New York became also known as the Jim Henson's Creature Shop. Okay. So there's like two of them. Uh, the New York location focuses on hand puppets, uh, Muppets and like Sesame Street characters. And the Creature Shop in California uh, is on like realistic animatronics and creature suits. Oh, they also do this thing, uh, this really cool like digital puppetry mm-hmm. stuff where they like... It's computer animation um, that's, like, controlled by, like, that controls, like, digital avatars by using, like, manual puppets Mm -hmm. to, like, animate quickly. Yeah. They use that on Sesame Street these days a lot. Well, and the show, like, Sid the Science Kid on PBS, that's apparently all done by that completely, (laughs) which is really cool. Anyways, going back to currently. uh, And by currently, you mean 1979. Let's go back there. 1979, this is still like just before The Muppet Show ends. Henson was working on Empire Strikes Back, uh, creating Yoda. He was also the one that suggested the use of Frank Oz to puppeteer and voice it. I love Frank Oz. (laughs) I think he's one of my favorite dudes. He directed Little Shop of Horrors, so I will always love Frank Oz. Yeah, you're a big, big, big fan. In uh, 1982, uh, the Jim Henson Foundation was founded to promote and develop the art of puppetry in the U.S., um, which is still a very big thing. Uh, we're going to talk mm. a little bit about them later. That, that's what you do in your mid-40s as a successful person. You Make create a foundation. a foundation. Yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> also that year, the Dark Crystal came out. Finally. Now, modest success when it came to money. It did pretty well. Um, but E.T. came out that year. It was kind of overshadowed. So I don't really remember that in the, the history of family fantasy film. Yeah, yeah. Critically, it was highly received as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it just didn't do as well as they thought. It's my favorite Jim Henson movie. Yeah. It's uh, Dark Crystal and Great Muppet Caper. Those, those are my two. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Dark Crystal's good. I've only seen it, like, twice. I'd really like to watch it again. It's been a long time since I've seen it. So after the Dark Crystal didn't do as well as he hoped, Henson was, like, more determined to do something that was, like, just as innovative and different, but kind of connecting the stuff that he knew audience would would like. Mm-hmm. Music and humor. Yeah. Like, how? let's put all these things together. We'll make a hit that, like, people there, will like. There are no big crowd numbers in the Dark Crystal. Yeah. But mostly weird theosophist philosophy. <laughs> So what came out of that was Labyrinth. Everybody loves Labyrinth. Now. <laughs> Directed by Henson, he partnered with Cherry jo- Terry Jones from Monty Python on the script, mm-hmm. David Bowie for music, Brian Fowd was on design again. The uh, inventor of the Fushigi was probably involved. <laughs> Trevor Jones, who scored The Dark Crystal, came back to do the score. George Lucas was there producing. Like, it was everyone. Everyone was on this film. It was considered a complete commercial disappointment. Well, yeah, it was an ex- it was expensive. It to was produce. expensive. That was actually part of it. it. Was like how expensive it was to what they made. Just 
that's there was, how profits are calculated. Yeah, uh. it just didn't do that well. And it was a really, really big blow to mm-hmm. Jim Henson. You know, he was like, this is what people want. We're going to make a film that combines the things I want to do and what they want. And this like, will be yeah, it. I'll meet you halfway. Yeah. And then it... It's it, not it. Yeah. It did worse. Which is really unfortunate, because Jim Henson throws would throw himself into everything fully. Mm-hmm. Like, his career was his life. His children always talked highly of him, but they talked about the fact that, like, a lot of them went to work for the company very quickly because it was a way to spend time with their dad. <laughs> <laughs> and they speak about it in, like, a positive way right this this isn't like act one of hook yeah (laughs) this is like they enjoyed what they did but they were also like that's the best way to get to see him Mm -hmm. is to work with him so like this this was his life around the time of labyrinth's failing uh he separated from his wife oh but they would remain very close so over the next few years henson would still be very engaged in uh children's television like Muppet Babies. Yeah. Uh, which I love Muppet Babies so much. Uh, and Fraggle Rock. Love Fraggle Rock. And Fraggle Rock is really like kind of an interesting uh, show in the creation of it because it was made for an international audience. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of a lot of uh, the other stuff he made, you know, it was made like it's going to be a U.S. audience. Or the Muppet Show is going to be a UK and US audience. Mm-hmm. Fraggle Rock was made with the that idea was for everybody. Yeah, it was going to be for everyone. Uh, the puppet parts could easily be dubbed in other languages, and the like human parts between the man and Sprocket were purposely. They knew right away that those could be refilmed. Yeah, like, for the country it was going to be shown in. Like uh, our UK listeners are wondering who the heck is Sprocket. Yeah, because they didn't have Sprocket. They they had a guy in a lighthouse with a cat, I think. Something like that, yeah. So, like, every country that it was shown in, it had a different pairing for the live action stuff, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like what they do with Sesame Street nowadays. Yeah, like Sesame Pl- Street. Plaza Sesamo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, they have their own characters to connect it to, except that's kind of on a bigger scale, but yeah. still. Um, it's that type of idea. And also because it was going to be an international show, um, it really drove kind of like the plot of the characters mm-hmm. that they were, you know, from different backgrounds. They were different races. They had to work together. They had to, you know, conflict resolution. Yeah. Finding peace among each other. How do you coexist? Which really kind of thinks about like- things going on in the world. I love that Fraggle Rock has no bad guys. Mm-mm, like there, no. there's no Gargamel in in Fraggle Rock. It's just different groups of people with their own culture and outlook. Yeah, who are in competition for limited natural resources. Yeah, that's where the conflict comes from. There's yeah. only so many radishes to go around. Yeah. And, like, you could, like, some people could say, like, oh, well, they're the bad guys because they're trying to get the fraggles. Well, no, like, they're trying to get people to stop eating their food. (laughs) They're just trying to keep out garden pests. Yeah. And they don't understand that it's a society. Yeah. And the the successes are when they actually bridge that gaps and explain that they have common ground. And it's the best. Yeah. Fraggle Rock is the best show. I love Fraggle Rock. (laughs) Down Fraggle Rock. Like, the, the creation... I love this story. Go ahead. Uh, the, the creation of Fraggle Rock. We should have like did a joint episode about this probably together. Maybe. 
Jim Henson was on a road trip with, I'm pretty sure, is Jerry Jewell, because of Probably. course it would have been. And he was just musing to himself, what if we made a kid's show that ended war? Yeah. And that was... Uh, uh, World peace. That was the beginning of Fraggle Rock right there. That's yep. the intent. Yep. It is apparently the first Western show to be shown in Russia. There you go. Yeah. In 1989. So Immediately post-Soviet Russia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in 1988, um, Jim Henson went back to the fairy tales again. Mm-hmm. Um, with something called The Storyteller. It was nine half-hour episodes that retold classic, lesser-known fairy tales and folk tales. And it would combine uh, people and creatures. It was actually conceived by his daughter. In the U.S., not all of the episodes aired, um, but the rest were shown in 1989 on the Jim Henson Hour, which was an hour-long anthology series, uh, kind of modeled after, like, Walt Disney Presents, mm -hmm. uh, the Disneyland show, all With the name changes. many, many titles. Yes. <laughs> um, Twelve episodes were produced, but only nine were shown. Uh, it was really well-received, but it was canceled due to low ratings, which... Apparently, it was getting rescheduled all the time. They were constantly changing when it aired. So, of course, it had low ratings. No one knew when to watch. <laughs> it had a miracles happen on it. That will make sense if you listen to Sex Archie. <laughs> Skeet Altridge show. Keep changing the day. Nothing can survive. <laughs> in part just because it was the 90s and, and in part because they had developed so much technology for things like the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. Storyteller was like the best puppetry he ever put on yeah. TV from like a technical perspective. Yeah. It like was, they, really good they looking created stuff. some amazing stuff for mm -hmm. a show. And I guess I should correct myself when I say that technology had developed. It's because he had developed it. Yes. He and his workshop. Because he continued <laughs> to be innovative and create new things and... That's part of what I just love about, like, all of it is how it continues to grow all the mm -hmm. time. It wasn't just, okay, we figured out how to do this. It's how can we continue to do it better? Right. So in 1989, negotiations started to uh, sell the company to Walt Disney Company for $150 million. Henson hoped that if Disney was handling the business aspects, he could spend more time on the creative side. Yeah. His, his whole thing there of, like, he just wants to create, but he has but to do a yeah, lot of things. It, it's hard when your name is on the side of a $150 million business. Yes. So Jim Henson would die before negotiations could be finished. Um, they ended the negotiations in December 1990, and they did not come to terms at the time. So the company was not bought. Shortly before his death in 1990, Henson completed production on a TV special, The Muppets at Walt Disney World, and also almost completed production on the Walt Disney World attraction of Muppet Vision 3D, which we're going to talk about. <laughs> so Muppet Vision 3D is at Disney's now Hollywood Studios, then MGM Studios. So in the show, Kermit the Frog guides guests through the Muppet Studios and demonstrates new 3D technology. Um, but things go amiss. Oh, um, no. But it's actually a 4D show, so it utilizes, like, bubbles and air and all that stuff. But and it also has characters 
out, out in the theater. Yes, like there's puppets that pop out. Sweetums goes by. You, your dream is to be Sweetums. It is. <laughs> so it's directed by Jim Henson, um, and it opened a year after he died on May 16th, 1991. It was the last project that he was involved with, um, both directing and being the voice of Kermit. It's the last project we have him on. Mm-hmm. It is actually also the last project of Richard Hunt, oh. who is known for Scooter and Beaker and Sweetums. I didn't know that. Yeah, he would die in 1992 of AIDS-related complications. Oh. So it's the last for both of them. And Disney can never close this attraction. <laughs> like, they like- cannot. It is such a moment in time mm-hmm. of the last thing that he created. Yeah. Like, it can't go away. <laughs> when uh, they they announced the the big expansions at that park, people were terrified that that means uh, well nobody watches Muppet Vision anymore. They can just use that space. No, <laughs> but that's not the case. It is they still can't. there. It better be there forever, or I will like because yeah, it is history. It's the last time you'll ever hear Jim Henson's voice come out of Kermit the Frog. Yeah. You know, it's it's not it's it, not something you can watch elsewhere. It also means it's the last thing you'll see with Bean Bunny in it, but never mind that. Aw, Bean Bunny. One other project that he had a hand in um, was the concept for the show Dinosaur. That would be the yes, other thing that he the, created before he died was the concept or for it. The he didn't actually, animatronic family sitcom uh-huh, about dinosaurs. I watched that so much as a child. It was good. It was. The concept for it came about shortly before his death, though actual like production all that hadn't started. So in spring of 1990, uh, Jim Henson was traveling continuously. Mm-hmm. Uh, he began to experience reoccurring flu-like symptoms. On May 4th, 1990, uh, Henson and Kermit uh, appeared on the Arsenio Hall show. Um, <laughs> which would that's be like a time capsule his, right there. <laughs> like one of his last interviews. Yeah. So that's like the other time you can see him performing Kermit. Is on that show, which I we will link as well. Mm-hmm. And he was feeling under the weather at the time as well. On May 12th, 1990, uh, he and his daughter traveled to visit his father and stepmother. Um, they returned to New York the next day, and he canceled a recording session that was supposed to happen the following day. Uh, Jane came to visit him, and a few hours later, he was having trouble breathing. They were like, we should take you to the hospital. And he he didn't want to go because he had too much to do. He couldn't be caught up in being at a hospital. But they a few hours later, they convinced him to go. Um, and while there, he stopped breathing and was placed on a ventilator. And within 20 hours, on May 16th, he had passed away. Uh, he was 53 years old, and uh, he had died of organ failure due to streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. So on May 21st, there was a public memorial that was held in New York City. And on June 2nd, another one in London. Uh, In accordance with Henson's letters, people didn't wear black. So some of the things that happened was uh, Turn the World Around was sung by Harry Belafonte, who debuted on The Muppet Show as uh, people waved brightly colored butterflies, uh, big bird bird sang being green. Uh, And in the final part of the ceremony, uh, Dave Gels, uh, Frank Oz, Steve Whitmire, 
Kevin Clash, Richard Hunt, and Jerry Nelson. The core Muppet performers sang a medley of uh, Jim's favorite songs uh, in their characters' voices. Mm -hmm. Uh, They ended with just one person that began with Richard Hunt singing as Scooter, and slowly other Muppet performers joined with their characters until they were all singing on the stage. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Are you okay, dear? I'm okay. Do we need to take another break? No, it's okay. Um, they recreated that in 19, uh, 1990 TV special, The Muppet Celebrates Jim Henson. Yeah. Which is a heartbreaker <sighs> of a TV special. I'm, I'm okay right now, I swear. Like, the plot of that TV special, like, all the Muppets are hanging out, mm-hmm. and they know that Kermit is finally going to introduce them to his good friend Jim, yeah. who he's been talking about for years. And so there's this, all these montages and tributes and, and people speaking to camera about uh, Jim Henson's life. And then Kermit walks in with his brand new voice for the first time and delivers the news that Jim Henson died. Yeah. And it's... It's the worst. Yes, oh, it's, and then oh. they they say goodbye, and there's like this moment where, isn't it like Kermit's little um, yeah Robin Robin is like this like kid drawn thing that says like we'll miss you, Jim. Yeah, and they they sing just one person, which is a old song from a forgotten musical that I think is more connected to the Muppets now, just for just for this. Yeah, and part of a, an episode of the muppet show in the 70s yeah barely got through writing all that too <laughs> let alone saying it which i have both the links to the memorial and the that tv special it is it is on um youtube which the memorial though i gotta say like the one i guess if you want to find something like cool about it is like seeing the performers perform their characters Mm-hmm. Just like themselves, they don't have any Muppets, but they're singing as the voices. It is so cool to see them go between character voices, yeah, yeah, and just like watching them actually perform. Because think, think of every Muppet voice you've ever heard. That's mostly like six people. Yeah, they've <laughs> and like some of the voices that like you just don't think would come out of like that person, and then you're like, wait, that was them. It's, yeah, it's really. Neat. If you can get if you can get through the emotional turmoil of what <laughs> it all is, at least watch that part because it's just really neat. So since then, since then, the last since we twenty-seven lost years, this amazing man, nearly our entire lives. <sighs> but he's such a part of our lives. That's true. That's the thing. Like he's been not around for the majority of our life, but he's such a part of it. Such a part of it. So the company has evolved. Disney did get the rights to the Muppets. Um, they, 14 years after that. Yes. Uh, so they own and operate it. Um, but the Muppets are going strong. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, you know, as we know, they've kind of had a revival. But they only bought the Muppets, right? Like the the Jim Henson Productions and the Creature Shop yeah, are still they, owned by they, the family. They bought the Muppets, just the Muppets, just the characters. And, like, Sesame Street is still going, and that is owned by Sesame Workshop. But the Creature Shop still continues on. Um, they do a variety of film, TV, ads, mm-hmm. um, constantly creating new work. I believe it's mostly owned by his daughter and mm-hmm. operated by 
Brian, the oldest son. Yes, which all all of the stuff that is still under the Jim Henson name, mm-hmm. uh, whether Creature Shop, Company, and all that, is all family-operated. It's all his children, maybe even grandchildren now, uh, but his family. The Jim Henson Foundation continues to promote and develop puppetry in the United States. They are actually, um, just a couple of years ago, they did uh, a really big thing, um, I can't remember what the exact title was. I don't think they called it like an internship, but it was like people could apply to basically get kind of almost like a residency mm-hmm. within uh, the foundation and like be trained and learn um, and develop their technique. The foundation has also granted uh, 850 grants to American puppet artists um, since it opened in 1982, mm-hmm. which is awesome. <laughs> They are involved in a lot of different festivals and events to continue the art. The And the Jim Henson Company is still going strong. They create a lot of children's programming like, now. Uh, you mentioned Sid the Science Kid earlier. There's so many things on uh, PBS. Do you remember that? Like, I remember there's like a train with the dinosaurs, yeah, too. Yeah, it's called Dinosaur Train. Yeah, that. That was it. That's them, too. <laughs> Still out there. Um, they they did the suits and puppetry for the first two Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle films in the 90s. Yeah. The okay. third one did not hire the workshop, but it hired many of the same staff as independent contractors. Yes. Well, there's a lot of other like TV shows that they worked on. There's stuff like Farscape and other science yeah, fiction stuff Farscape that was they a big workshop show. made a ton of stuff for, which we could go on about forever the stuff they had i was trying to focus on like the man not the, the company. man himself yeah um but i mean you could look for hours at the stuff they've had their hands in and it's really mm-hmm. really cool what they create and what they do and how they are trying to continually make new things so he's left quite a legacy yeah. that continues on and a lot of the um, things we have seen and the way we, we recognize the Muppets and, like, puppetry on TV and stuff is because of him. Are you sad? I'm still sad. <laughs> Did you learn anything? Let's go with that instead of are you sad. I learned a few facts. This this is somebody who I adore just as much as you do. So you know a lot of it. I so know. I, yeah. I know. Even though I knew you knew about it, I want to talk about something because it's my birthday episode. Yeah. And I want to talk about something I like, even if it makes me sad. If you were to ask me who the greatest creative genius of the 20th century is, I would say Jim Henson. Yeah. And I know you at home, you're saying uh, you're saying Pablo Picasso, Maya Angelou, uh, Kurosawa, and these are all strong, strong choices, but I have considered them, and I'm saying Jim Henson. Well, look at... How much of what he has done has influenced other things and developed technology for other things, Mm -hmm. developed design for other things. He he revolutionized an entire ancient art form. Mm -hmm. There there is no contemporary concept of puppetry without uh, the Muppets as a brand and Jim Henson's techniques and developments beyond that. Yeah. Well, if you look at just like... The development of stuff within the creature shop, mm-hmm. the things that they created for television and TV alone right. is a whole episode in itself. <laughs> and even if it weren't for the puppets, even if it were um, just the from the director of Timepiece and the writer of Cube, you know, that team kept doing things like that. Yeah. They would have toiled in like uh, commercial obscurity 
but became these foundational figures of experimental film that all of your favorite commercial directors would be pledging their loyalty to. Yeah, which, I mean, it happens anytime someone leaves, you wonder, like, what they would have done. I'll forever wonder, like, what he would have created. Especially because, you know, he was working towards having other people take over the business side of stuff. You know he had to have been thinking, like, I want to be able to do certain things. I want to not have to worry about these things so I can create these other things. And you have to wonder what he he was itching to create. Yeah. What would his third original film have looked like? Yeah. It probably wouldn't have been Tale of Sand. (laughs) No. (laughs) No no one was ever going to pick that one up. But like all through his life, you can see him thinking the same thought. And that, that tension between loving... The, the work he does for children and and promoting children's education and, and development, but resisting being pigeonholed as the kid's puppet guy and yeah. wanting to do so much more. And and the tension between the, the flowering and development of, like, of his company, which allows him to stretch what he can, but it also chains him to a desk and budgets and expectations. Yeah. And he, he's just sort of caught in this liminal state. And if you look at his personal statements, it really varies between frustration and embracing, you know, on a, on a day-to-day, month-to-month yeah. basis. Because that's life, man. Yeah. That's life. Well, that's especially, like, <laughs> as an artist. Yeah. Like, I mean, not that my life is full-on art all the time and stuff, but it's the one thing that when you're trying to make any type of art, it's that balance of all the business stuff with wanting to create. And it's hard, and it's complicated, and you get burnt out. Yeah, yeah. But then you get inspired again, and then you get burnt out again, and it's that (laughs) never-ending cycle of, like, a battle of, is this what I want to do? Am I not doing this? Can I do it? Mm -hmm. Is it worth it? And that even in in smaller careers, (laughs) that is the continuous battle. So so anyway, look out for our bonus episode where I just go on for hours and hours at a time. About how the Dark Crystal is the the fullest short form expression of Jim Henson's ideology, yeah, and how Fraggle Rock is the extended, nuanced version, yeah, <laughs> and and the bonus episode where we watch the Muppets celebrate Jim Henson and we just both cry <laughs> yeah. the whole time. Our commentary track is just the sound of tissues being pulled from a <laughs> box over and over. Anyway, while we compose ourselves, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to be right back with your letters. Everybody, like I said, we have a lot of lovely letters from you listeners. We do. Well, we got a letter from Leanne. Uh, Leanne's favorite puppet, which was our prompt, what is the your favorite puppet, is Gonzo the Great. Somebody enjoyed this episode. Yeah. Always really liked Gonzo because of his weirdness. She's going to pick a puppet for puppet design. It would be the Skeksis from Dark mm. Crystal. An honorable mention goes to Jerome the Giraffe and Rusty the Chicken from The Friendly Giant, which you recognized. Very vaguely. 
like I didn't know I knew it until I looked that up, and oh, yeah. things just seemed so vaguely familiar. Yeah, I I probably should look it up because I yeah. would probably know what it is. The Friendly Giant was a Canadian children's television show. Yes. And growing up in a border state, yes. my home often got Canadian channels. Yes, mine did as well. English-speaking Canadian channels and French-speaking Canadian channels. So thank so nice, you, Leanne. Ian sent us an email, and his favorite puppet is Lamb Chop from Lamb Chop's Play Along. And I love Lamb Chop. Oh, that's a good one. I had a Lamb Chop puppet yeah. as a kid. Yeah, I loved Lamb Chop. Lamb Chop originally showed up in the 1950s. And then continued to appear through the 60s. The 90s is when we know it from PBS. Mm -hmm. um, and Sherry Lewis has passed away, but her daughter continues to perform Lamb Chop now, uh, which is really cool. And fun fact, Lamb Chop was promoted to a three-star general by the deputy commander of the Pacific for the Marines. Lamb Chop knows the nuclear codes. Don't mess with Lamb Chop. Lamb Chop's gonna beat you up. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, thanks. Elizabeth and Rick both write in to say their favorite puppet is the Angel Puppet from the Smile Time episode of Angel, uh, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer spinoff. Now, Rick also goes back to our previous episode's prompt. Mm -hmm. Favorite superhero, Batwoman, uh, Kate Kane uh, and her Batwoman alter ego. She's one of the most prominent gay characters in uh, American cape books, uh, who's inspired by Batman and decided to take on crime in a similar mantle after being ejected from the military for violating the don't ask, don't tell policy. And the art, especially the panel layouts, my goodness, Batwoman is a gorgeous book. Yeah. Back when it was still being made. Mm, uh, sad. But thanks, Rick. Uh, Steven sent us an email. Their favorite puppet is Conky from Trailer Park Boys, also a Canadian show. I'm, I'm looking Conky look, up. Yeah, I, I need to know. That's Conky. Oh, Jesus. That is something. What? What are you sending us? No. That's a little scary. Thanks, Thanks Steven. Steven. Speaking of old prompts, David writes in to share... Uh, his least favorite labor union, the Shop Distributed and Allied Employees Association, better known as the SDA or Shoppies, uh, the Retail Workers Union of Australia. It's one of the largest, wealthiest, and most powerful unions, and as wealthy organizations tend to do, doesn't really stand up for its uh, labor anymore. They support scab workers. They throw their weight behind a, an anti-labor centrist political party and uh, generally don't really live up to the promise of the labor movement in any real way. David, though, did send us puppy pictures. Thank you, David. You're <laughs> Thank you for sending puppies. Uh, and for the current prompt, David's favorite puppet would be Miss Piggy. But as a Muppet, David disqualifies her from consideration for, for basis of taxonomy. He's not going to like this episode much, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Uh, but instead, it goes back to a children's show character from his native Australia, Agro, the host of Agro's Cartoon Connection. Agro did various skits uh, between introducing the cartoons in question, uh, usually consisting of Agro insulting and pranking his assistant, a young blonde woman. Nice. 
Agro was sort of elevated by the cartoons. He was surrounded by classics like Sailor Moon and Samurai Pizza Cats. So we'll always remember the time Agro slammed his friend Teresa's hand into a pile of duck poop. Wow. Thanks, David. Alex wants to expand on something I said sort of as an aside in our Copper Country strike about the unionization of professional wrestlers. In the 80s, there was a push headed by Jesse the Body Ventura, future governor of Minnesota, that was squashed when uh, they approached Hulk Hogan to join, and instead he ratted them out to the owner, Vince McMahon. Uh, since then, wrestlers have sued WWF and now WWE uh, from time to time over their contractor status, uh, but most of those cases have been tossed out for procedural technicalities. That's something you can expect to have happen uh, when you have the sort of money Vince McMahon does. On one hand, it's a silver lining, and on another, it's a manipulation of the system. Uh, WWE now has its own film division, which exists in part to get SAG-AFTRA membership for their their biggest name superstars, so that uh, if there is any agitation, it's from the people who can be cut without really hurting the brand. Yeah. Uh, but as for a favorite puppet, Alex has a hard time deciding between the robots of Mystery Science Theater 3000 and all the heartwarming creations of Jim Henson Studios. Fortunately, he doesn't have to. The Isle of Rangoon is an internet show that combines the uh, aesthetics of one with the movie-riffing content of the other. So thanks, Alex. Uh, Flavofibe wrote us and also talks about... Uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, my favorite puppet being Crow T. Robot, something loved to watch as a kid and rediscovered as a young adult. So thank you, Flavor 5, and thanks for watching our other show, which we'll talk about in a minute. James writes in, his favorite puppet is from an old obscure anime, Ayatsuri Puppet Master Sakan. Uh, Sakan has a puppet named Ukon, who goes around and solves murders. The idea is that... Uh, Sakan would channel spirits and Ukon would be uh, a possessed spirits of the dead. But really, it's just Sakan putting on a really good puppet show. It's like Psych, but for ventriloquists mm. and an anime. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, James. Uh, Alex and Faye write in again. Faye's favorite puppet is uh, Badger, a badger puppet from the show Bodger and Badger, who loves mashed potatoes. Is that yeah. actually what it's called? I, it's called Bodger and Badger, and Badger loves mashed potato. Oh. I think. I'm not English, but I, I think... I mean, it'd be really cool if it was called Bodger and Badger who loves mashed potatoes, like if that was the whole title. Either way we parse this sentence, it sounds like a lovely show that we didn't get on this side yeah. of the Atlantic. I mean, I love mashed potatoes, so I would probably <laughs> love this as well. <laughs> Alex's uh, favorite is Basil Brush who is essentially Terry Thomas as a puppet fox. Basil Brush is great. I do love him. I don't know that either. You're not as English as I am. No, you're very, you're very international here. <laughs> and then also for an internationally known puppet, uh, mentions Count Van Count of the Muppets. Not true, technically. Not Mm -hmm. Sesame Workshop this, is different than Muppets. Th this is a legal distinction. Yes, they might sue. Um, but... Uh, largely likes it because he exhibits uh, an aspect of vampire mythology usually overlooked, that being the obsession of counting things. 
Well, there was that X-Files episode with Luke Wilson in it. Yeah. So, like, if a vampire's coming after you in that X-Files episode, you throw, like, raisins at it, and then it has to pick up all the raisins and count them, and you can get away. I'm sure it would work with Count Von Count, too. Yeah. Well, thanks, Alex and Faye. So, that's our letters. Uh Uh-huh. And if you would like to send us an email to get read on the show, or just because you've got a question or whatever, where can those go? Those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And in order to encourage you to send us things, uh-huh. so not only show suggestions, questions, uh-huh. just to chat. Uh-huh. We also, puppy pictures. Puppy pictures. Uh, we, we also give a uh, prompt for every episode. Yeah, what's the prompt? I would like to hear everybody's favorite painting. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. So fancy. Are paintings inherently fancy? Because I've seen some bad paintings in my life. So yeah, send uh, a response to the prompt or anything else you you might like to to get read on air mm-hmm. to Honey's podcast at gmail.com. Yep. Another way to get in touch with us mm-hmm. is on social media. We are on Twitter. We are on Instagram. We are on Facebook. And you can chat with us there. You can follow along with what's going on. And all of those can be found at History Honeys. We made it nice and easy. But you might also find us talking about something else lately. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Our other show. We started a new show, and it is called Sex Sex Archie. Archie. Sex Archie is a weekly recap podcast of the CW show Riverdale, taken from the Archie comics. And it is great. It's great. It's great. (laughs) It's great. Riverdale is on a three-week hiatus. They are. So you have plenty of time to catch up with us. And if you aren't interested in watching the TV show, you can still listen to the podcast. In fact, three quarters of our listeners are in the same boat. (laughs) Though I think you all should be watching. Just because it's it's a good show. It's not required for listening. I I bring up that statistic to say you won't be lost. No. Because those people, those three quarters keep coming back. Yep. So take their word for it. Back to this show. Uh-huh. While, while you're checking out us, our, our various work, why don't you help others find it as well? Leaving a, a rating and review on iTunes is going to do great things for, for us showing up in rankings and suggestions. Yeah. In fact, we haven't mentioned it directly, but today, the, the release day of this episode is your it's birthday. It's my birthday! So one nice thing you can do for Elena on her birthday... Is give us a rating and review yeah, on iTunes. You could do that. That'd be nice. Be a good birthday present. Do you have any other birthday suggestions for the folks at home? Puppies. Pu- more you puppy could, pictures? You, you could send me more puppy pictures. I like puppies. Like David did. Yeah. Be like David. I mean, you could send me pictures of other things, too. Like, other animals are welcome as well. Except spiders. No one better send me a picture of their spider. You won't get red on air, ever. <laughs> You're not down with the ranchos? I'm not down with the spiders. Especially on my birthday. But you know what else people could do? What can they do, dear? They could also tell friends. Yeah. They could tell their family. Yeah. They could spread the word to other people. You know what? They could be like we were today. That's right. We went to the eye doctor and the nice man selling you glasses. He is uh, now a History Hunters. <laughs> history Hunters. History Honeys subscriber on itunes he went on his phone and hit the subscribe button right in front of so you know when i say tell your barista sell your tell your optometrist it works tell the man selling you something 
It works. We are proven here. So if you're listening, man that I forgot the name of from the eye doctor today, hey, those are pretty good glasses you helped him find. Good job. You take nice pictures. Thanks for showing us your pictures. Well, I'd just like to wish you a happy birthday, dear. I know we're recording this a few days ahead of time. But whatever we're doing, mm-hmm. while people are listening to it, I, I want you to know that I'm, I value you and I Aww. love you. And I'm so happy we're, we're doing this together, yeah. our, our lives and our shows and, and all of it. Aw. So when do I get to open my presents? Literally any time. <laughs> they are your presents. They have your name on them. <laughs> and you also know what's inside them. I do, but they're sitting there wrapped for like two weeks. I'm pulling the plug. I'm Grant. <laughs> and I'm Elena. <laughs> History's better with, with your, your honey. honey.